Welcome back to the iceberg of economics. This is going to be the second of what's going to end up being a nine-part series. Uh, the iceberg meme that I found on Reddit about this has eight tiers, but one of them is one term, level eight, which I'm not even sure what that concept is. So I'm going to be replacing that with a tier of obscure heterodox economic philosophies. And then I'm going to have an even lower tier, which is what I call crazy town, which are going to be my theories on the subject of economics as an economist myself. That's apart from mainstream economics, Keynesianism, and or Austrian economics. And then that will conclude the series. But without further ado, let's get on to part two. First one on the surface level is the IS-LM model, which is basically a Keynesian macroeconomic model which describes the relationship between the demand for financial assets versus economic goods and services. And basically, when the cost of money is cheaper, aka lower interest rates, that increases demand for goods and services for a number of reasons. One, um, asset prices go up and that creates a sense of wealth effect, but two, uh, borrowing becomes more affordable. So those who have the propensity to live beyond their means can now do so due to cheaper financing. And then the reverse happens when money tightens. I know it does sound very um, monetaristic, but it's technically a Keynesian model, but it basically shows on, the, on a graph really um, that the intersection really between the loanable funds and the money market and aggregate demand um, have some sort of correlation. And it's also known as the Hicks model because it was created by the British economist John Hicks in 1937. Uh, the next one we are going to be talking about are corporations. Uh, corporations are often a boogeyman for the economically illiterate, but a corporation really simply is a legal entity that represents the operations of a business, or in the case of a 501, um, a nonprofit. Uh, there are many reasons to start corporations, but the main one is for limited liability whereas if you are a sole proprietorship without some sort of corporate veil, then if your business attains too much financial distress and fails because of it, you are personally on the hook. And there are many countries in Europe and in East Asia where even though there technically are corporations, small business owners still are on the hook. In the event their businesses fail and that's why their entrepreneurship rates are considerably lower in those countries than in the US which is more forgiving bankruptcy laws. There are a variety of corporations. Uh, the most common one among publicly traded companies is a C corporation which a C corporation has double taxation as the downside where you have to pay a corporate income tax and then the shareholders pay um, on the distributions or individual income tax. Uh, the reason why you'd want a C-Corp is because C-Corps uh, allow a much larger base of shareholders than an S-Corp or an LLC would. 
and they also um, are make things a lot easier if you need if you want to go public. Like public offerings are not done with other types of corporations. So C corps are help with exit liquidity and selling to other minority interests, or also allow make the process going public to be easier. But at the expense of shareholder liquidity, uh, the downside of a C corp is you have double taxation. The other two main corporations are, at least for for-profit companies, are S corps and LLCs, and these are mainly done by self-employed or small business owners. Uh, limited LLC is kind of an S corp is unlike a C corp. Uh, everything passes on directly. Same with an LLC, it pass, it's more of a pass-through instrument. So the question you're probably already asking is, so what's the difference between an S-Corp and an LLC? Because that's actually pretty confusing for a lot of people. Uh, an LLC is the type of entity, it's, uh, it's like a C-Corp is, whereas an S-Corp is, is specifically a tax designation. It's the tax designation of keeping... Um, the um, the holdings pass through to the shareholders and not having a um, separate layer of corporate tax. Uh, the limit really to LLCs and S corps is that they can't really have more than a hundred shareholders. You have to switch to a C corp, and that's again why I mentioned why you don't see S corps or LLCs going public. Uh, the next one we're going to be talking about is green growth. Uh, green growth, and you'll see this with a lot of these things in the iceberg, is really just this idea of trying to insert current political and social goals into economics to create an economic philosophy that will justify pursuing normally non-economic uh, actions to make it seem like they actually are economic actions. And it's not just environmentalists. I'm not picking on them. It's just that environmentalism is the more the trendier school of, um, of thought that is being inserted in economics because of concerns of climate change. But this could apply to a lot of other goals. Like if you have a social goal and you want to make it um, sound like it's a good idea for the economy, you will make some economic theory revolving around um, how there are so much negative externalities, which there actually are negative externalities for the environment. It's just really the question is, what is the degree of negative externalities of industry to the environment? Is really the debate that goes on there. But the really, it's, it's just the point is that when you have a social goal, you try to goal seek it, into a theory of economics to make it seem like achieving the social goal is actually an economically optimal path when it may not be. So that is um, green growth is just one of these. It's just the idea that um, that economic growth, as long as economic growth remains a predominant goal, um, that the environmental impacts of that economic growth are not being properly accounted for and as a result uh, economists and policymakers need to change the goal away from just maximizing economic growth to uh, 
having the maximum economic growth that can be done in a way that is sustainable for the environment. Uh, the next one we're going to be talking about is the Big Mac Index. Uh, the Big Mac Index, which is most popularly tracked by The Economist magazine, is this idea that you could compare the relative price levels of different countries based on the cost of a Big Mac. Because McDonald's is in most countries in the world, and with that, you can compare the price of a Big Mac is, say, in the U.S. versus South Africa versus Brazil versus Mexico versus France or Japan or China. Have a good idea of either, one, whether a currency is over or undervalued for compared to purchasing power parity, or two, what is the general um, purchasing power parity of a Big Mac? So, I mean, as of currently, the most expensive overpriced Big Mac right now is a Swiss franc denominated Big Mac. So in Switzerland, it costs about um, six dollars and not six dollars, six point seven francs for a um, a Big Mac, whereas it's five fifty eight in the U.S. Uh, that's implying an exchange rate of 1.2 francs for every U.S. dollar, whereas in reality the actual exchange rate is 87 cents for a Swiss franc. As a result, um, Big Macs are 38.5% overvalued relative to the U.S., which means implying that the Swiss franc is overvalued relative to the dollar. Um, if you look at right now, there's only f seven countries that have um, a Big Mac that costs more than it, than it does in the United States right now. That includes Switzerland, Norway, Uruguay, surprisingly, actually, um, Argentina, the Eurozone, Sweden, and Denmark. So, yeah, it's, and, and pretty much, and even that's the case, even with a euro that is trading below what my expectations are for purchasing power parity. So, um, it means that Big Macs are relatively more expensive in Europe in the Southern Cone than elsewhere, whereas the cheapest one would be in Taiwan where a Big Mac in Taiwan just costs 75 new Taiwan dollars and versus $5.58 USD. But given that the exchange rate is 31 new Taiwan dollars to the US dollar, that's paying less than three bucks for a Big Mac. And therefore in Taiwan, Big Macs are 57% relatively undervalued. The flaw of this is that Big Macs are not representative of the general economy, especially as a lot of people are moving away from eating McDonald's in developed countries for health reasons, and also how things such as housing and services are bigger drivers for the economy than the cost of food. And as a country gets more prosperous, 
food as a percentage of a budget goes down. And in countries where food is a higher percentage of a budget, McDonald's doesn't have the same pricing power for its Big Mac. So emerging market economies structurally are going to always have cheaper uh, Big Macs, because not necessarily because it's always, always that much cheaper to produce a hamburger there. Well, labor costs do that, but the fact that just the consumer purchasing power in those countries just kind of forces its hand on that way. And if you look at the history of this, um, the dollar is quite a bit stronger than it has been historically. And that's been really the case for the last several years. And there's a lot of macro reasons, which I've talked about in previous videos and I could elaborate in the future, but that's a wrap really for the Big Mac index. The next concept is fractional reserve banking. I have strong opinions on this one, but I'm going to try to explain this as objectively as possible. Uh, fractional reserve banking is the idea that when you deposit your money in the bank, the bank doesn't always have one dollar for every dollar you have in deposits available. Uh, that would be called full reserve banking, where everything you put in the bank has equal amount of money backing it so that you can't really have a bank run. Whereas fractional reserve banking is that, this is what it is basically what its name says, only a fraction of the money out of the total deposits is sitting in the bank as deposits, the remainder is being lent out. And this is what creates the money multiplier effect. Uh, money supply grows when you have more money that lent out and then that money gets put in the bank and, it get, and a fraction of that gets lent out and that cycle keeps repeating. And you could really kind of calculate the money multiplier effect by having one divided the required reserve rate. And that will generally give you your money multiplier rate. In the US, the reserve requirement rate is historically been and still is 10%. So that means that the banks have to keep about 10% of their capital in the bank at all times. Uh, SIFI institutions have higher capital requirements due to um, them being deemed a systematic risk uh, during the great financial crisis. Some other countries have lower reserve requirements but I'm just going to just use 10% as an easy example. So if there's, if you have 10% reserve requirement, then you can lend out um, the other 90% of your money and it effectively creates a 10 times money multiplier. So for every dollar deposit in the bank, you have creating another $9 in loans. And then when that nine, you've put $100 in the bank, the bank keeps 10 bucks then the bank lends out the other 90. The person who takes that loan puts that money in the bank, then the bank lends out 81 of that dollars and they keep nine as for the reserve requirement. And this keeps going until it approximately increases the money supply by about 10 times when this is all said and done. And that's why when you have increased levels of lending, money supply increases and when you have credit crunches and people default on their debts, uh, then you see the money supply contract. Uh, the main downside of fractional reserve banking is bank runs. Uh, 
if you have more than 10% of your customers all wanting your money at the same time, then the bank may not have all of the money and then the bank fails. Um, this is what happened in the Great Depression and this is what happened recently with Silicon Valley Bank back in March. And the this creates volatility in the economy because if your money's in the bank and you happen to not get it out during the run, then you're out of luck and you have no money. I mean, at least in the era before deposit insurance. This is why um, deposit insurance was passed during the Great Depression was to try to stem off um, bank runs. And in the event a bank did fail, uh, smaller depositors who were not aware of the risks of the bank do not get punished. Uh, the merits of deposit insurance are something I could talk about in a different video. But the bottom line really is, is that the main risk really for fractional reserve banking is that it creates business cycles because you can, you, you can create all this money, but there, for, for all the money you create, it has to be paid back in, in its entirety plus an interest rate. But the, the, the money, the banking system is not creating all that money plus the interest rate. And that's what causes credit crunches because when it's time to pay back some of these long dated projects, um, a lot of the borrowers just simply did not generate enough value to pay those back. And in theory, you should have enough economic growth to cover it, but interest rates are generally higher than um, economic growth. And that is especially towards the end of cycles to keep inflation in check when central banks raise rates. And that is what partially causes a business cycle. Uh, again, this is a very oversimplified version of business cycle analysis. So don't grill me too much on the details of that in the comments. Uh, the next thing we're going to talk about is the efficient market hypothesis or EMH. Uh, if I believed in efficient market hypothesis, I would not be working in this profession or making these videos. So that probably tells you my stance on efficient market hypothesis, but it's the idea that all the known information in the world is priced in to every security stocks or bonds or commodities and outside of insider trading there is no way to generate any alpha because all the information whether it's fundamental analysis technical analysis etc that the, the crowd as a whole combined knows enough so that the whatever the current price is that's the at the current moment with the current facts and the current information, that is the accurate price level. And if that's the case, then there are no room for excess returns for the market pricing a stock or any other security inaccurately. Uh, the arguments in favor of the efficient market hypothesis is that most large cap mutual fund managers, about 85% of them fail to beat a market index over the long run and that it's very difficult for to be alpha to be quantified by academic research uh, but I think also there's a lot of flaws to this theory first um, 
the way that academics are doing this res um, the research for what works and what doesn't work in the market is much longer dated and much slower than market participants react. When there's a source of edge in the market, it may last only for a few weeks, a few months, or a few years. Whereas academic studies try to test uh, the impact of a market anonymously over much longer periods of time when the edge has been long been filtered out from that specific anomaly. And a lot of the inconsistencies in the market also are not really easy to quantify or not well known by academics or by the time they are, that piece, that edge is gone. And then the other side of it is a lot of what's going on in the market too is psychological. And it's hard to really um, trade an experiment who has better nerves to trade in and out of the markets and navigate the emotions of fear and greed that dominate business cycles. Like if there was truly an efficient market, you would have never had the tech bubble and the tech bust in the 2000s. Uh, you wouldn't have seen a lot of stocks in the non-banking sector get destroyed like they did during the GFC. And you wouldn't see a lot of these other mini bubbles or busts. And my most controversial take, if there's truly a, a efficient market, uh, Bitcoin and a lot of these cryptocurrencies would not have the same kind of value. And let's just say, for argument's sake, that Bitcoin is digital gold and has a legitimate intrinsic value. In that case, the altcoins should all, if it's a truly efficient market, all the altcoins would be worth zero and only Bitcoin would have value. Or if you are somebody who just doesn't believe any of these cryptocurrencies have intrinsic value, let's just put that argument aside, then the fact that these cryptocurrencies exist and are trading at a price above zero is kind of a debunking of the efficient market hypothesis. Either way, whatever stance you have on crypto, it, I mean, it's, let's just say crypto is an exception because it's a really weird and not as liquid or popularly traded market. Well, then again, why do we have manic motions in the market, bulls and bear markets? Like, for example, if, and excluding, like you have stock going down 20% on no news, no earnings report in a calendar year, uh, if fundamentals haven't changed, is that um, because the, the fundamentals have secretly have changed and the market doesn't know? If that's the case, then value investors would not, would be all out of business. Uh, Warren Buffett probably wouldn't exist. Seth Klarman probably wouldn't exist. A lot of others uh, wouldn't exist either. Um, Steve Romick. Uh, you, the thing is, though, the, the counter to that would be, well, if you just have a, a 64 team bracket or a, a lot bigger, I guess, 64,000 hedge fund and mutual fund bracket, the Warren Buffetts and the Romics of the world really are just survivorship bias. That's what happens if you flip a coin enough times over a certain amount of years with all the market participants. Of course, you're going to have a few left who've gotten lucky. But just my practical experience as a practitioner in the financial markets, uh, it's very self-evident to me that the efficient market hypothesis is incorrect, mainly because of the emotional behaviors of many non-economic actors and the history of markets and business cycles. 
and a lot of just general mispricings that are seen. I mean, is it easy? No, it's not easy. Uh, that's why um, not everybody's just sitting on a beach sipping Mai Tais while watching their stocks go up, but it can be done. And then the last one for this iceberg is the social market economy. A social market economy, or also known as democratic socialism, is the idea that you can integrate some parts of capitalism and socialism to create a more optimized uh, society for those living in it. Uh, the most famous examples of these would be the countries in Scandinavia where you have fairly low regulation business climate and the state doesn't really get involved in operating decisions like in traditional socialism would be implied but it's not entirely a free economy in the sense that you have very high tax rates which effectively makes the government a silent business partner in every operation in your country and that money is redistributed to achieve social goals whether it's subsidizing health care education uh, keeping the poor off the streets or whatever um, the government the voters see to be fit um, this is also kind of known as a mixed economy but a social uh, market economy leans more on having a large welfare state and the government covering a lot of the basic costs of living for people but in exchange is that people have effective ceilings and limitations on their incomes due to very high tax rates. Uh, the upside of this is that it provides a lot of social stability. Uh, the lower classes particularly like the social stability for people who have more modest ambitions and means can feel more comfortable and have less sense of jealousy because um, it's very hard for somebody to break out. But the downside is if you didn't have money before the system was enacted, uh, it's very hard for somebody who wants to actually get ahead to do so just because of the costs of financing this government and the high taxes involved. If you're paying 60, 70 cents on the dollar to the government, then it's it's very difficult to build any meaningful savings and investments and to have a standard of living that is meaningfully higher than somebody in a lower tax bracket because the gap between your guys' take-home pay is far lower than um, it would be if it was a less high tax environment. And so, yeah, you're basically trading off social stability for economic growth and opportunities to make it big. Uh, the example of Z is the comparison of Western Europe compared to the United States for a, even though both have capitalist and socialist components to them, I would say that the European dream is more of the social market economy and the United States is the closest, I would say, or one of the closest to a free market economy, even though there are social protections in the US. So that wraps up part two. Uh, thank you for watching and we'll have part three come out soon.